Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters. Uh, today's going to be a Monday show. That means it's a listener feedback show. That means this is all stuff that was sent to me at jack at the survival podcast.com. That's the email address. I will warn you in advance. I get 200 to 400 emails a day, uh, on this type of thing. A lot of times there's overlap. And when I get an email, you know, from 30 people about the same thing, it always gets on the air, or at least in general, it gets on the air. But a lot of stuff never sees the light of day. It's not because I don't value it. It's not because I don't read it. It's not because I don't appreciate it. It's because I only have so much time on the air every day to get this stuff out to you guys. So I do put a lot of it out on Facebook, YouTube, or actually Facebook and Twitter. Uh, so I'll throw that out early today that uh, if you want to stay in touch with me and learn a lot of different things that don't make it on the air, uh, Facebook and Twitter is a good way to do that. Facebook even more than Twitter, I would say. I, I think I like Facebook a little better, so I engage on it a little bit more. Before we do get into that today, though, and I've got a lot of cool stuff today, uh, things we've been waiting to hear back about, some things that are going on out there that we need to know about. It's just going to be a great show today because you guys did a great job of bringing me information. And most of this stuff came to me over the weekend, believe it or not. Uh, there was just so much cool stuff that came in between Friday and today. I tried to do it as current as possible. So you guys had emailed me earlier in the week last week. You got it pushed out. Uh, maybe I'll try to dig back in there and pull some other stuff up. Remember, it never hurts to email me twice if you really want something on the air. Uh, just space it out a few days or it won't really help you. All right. Uh, again, before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, silverandgoldshop.com. The wonderful Mary Beth Maidmont. You know, I believe that silver and gold belong in everybody's portfolio. Uh, from a very rich guy, you know, that lives um, out on Long Island and spends his days on Wall Street, uh, to a young child that's just beginning to save for their future. Everybody should have at least a little bit of silver and gold in their portfolio. And a great place to get some really kind of cool novelty silver rounds is silverandgoldshop.com. And what you'll find with Mary Beth is she's going to take such good care of you that the audience often writes me about her and says she's wonderful. And again, I've never even heard that about a silver or gold supplier uh, in my life. She's the only one I've ever heard that about. And I think it's just because her care of the customer is so extreme that when certain things pop up, and I'll give you for instance, you order silver in the morning and silver's trading and I don't even know what it is. Today. Let's say it's trading at $34 an ounce. By the time your order ships in the evening, let's say silver's dropped to $33 an ounce. I've heard from customers in that scenario where she's contacted them and they've ordered four or five coins and she's rebated them a few dollars on their order because at the time the order was actually executed, silver had gone down in price. I have never heard of a supplier doing that online ever, period. Whatever you pay when you order, that's what it comes out to. I don't even know how she takes the time to do that, but that's one example of why people call her wonderful. Uh, next up today, HarvestEating.com with the uh, illustrious and famous Chef Keith Snow. You know, I talk about all this cool stuff you can get from your CSA, your farmer's market, you can grow in your backyard, all these cool vegetables that you generally don't find at the Kroger or the Winn-Dixie or whatever. 
But when you have all that stuff, or you have that pastured chicken, or pastured pork, or grass-fed beef, it's a little different than what you're accustomed to, and you're combining that with whatever vegetables are available seasonally from local sources or from your backyard, how do you cook that stuff? You know, a lot of folks out there that are finally get, getting it and getting off of the pasture, or the you know the, the, the chemical food, are, are, are so used to cooking from a microwave in a box, they're not really sure what to do. Well, Chef Keith Snow can take anything you can put, put at him. I've done it on the show. I've thrown, top, you know, take this and this and what do you do with it? It'll come up with something amazing that you'll want to eat that's simple to prepare. So check out Harvest Eating. Get his cookbook. Consider joining his membership. Great site. Great information. HarvestEating.com with Chef Keith Snow. Uh, next up, like I said at the beginning, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, great ways to stay in touch with me. Uh, make sure you get involved with the forum as well. Last but not least, do consider joining my Member Support Brigade. Why would you do that? Why would you join the Member Support Brigade? Well, one would be you listen to the show every day and you think, this is a great show, Jack. I want to support what you're doing. Well, you can support me by giving me 20 cents an episode. That's about 50 bucks a year, which is what the membership is. So that would be one reason. The other reason would be because you're a prepper and you're into preparedness and you're into homesteading and you buy stuff like seeds and long-term storage foods and all that other stuff. Well, there's over 25 different vendors that give you real discounts you can't get anywhere else. So that will pay for the membership itself. Then there's some videos that are available nowhere else that I put there for you. Then there's over $100 worth of free ebooks on a $50 membership. So uh, the, the reason you would do this is to support the show because you'll get a return of investment higher than the 50 bucks you put in. So it pays for itself and you support the show. Pretty cool, huh? Well, also, if you are military law enforcement uh, or a prior service Peace Corps member, and you email me with the details of your service, I will give you a greater discount. Just email me before you join. I don't publish the information on that to keep it to just that group. I believe that when you provide service to your nation, your nation should provide something back to you. Your government's not going to do it. I can't make it right. I can't fix it, but it's one small thing I can do. So it's something that I do because I believe in those who serve. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show, which, of course, is your feedback. I want to start out with two. Uh, I'm going to do two money-saving tips out of my little money-saving tip basket folder uh, from when we did those shows because there's still so many there. Uh, the first one comes to us from uh, no name. <laughs> no name. I am I monitor it or something is the email address. Here's what it says, though. If you have a local technical college or vocational agricultural school in your area, it can be a great money-saver. For example, if you have a second car that needs mechanical or body work, you can arrange to have the students work on it as part of their hands-on training. You might have to leave the car for a few days, but the payout is getting the work done cheap, and you allow the students valuable learning experience. Most of the time, you just pay for the parts and materials used. Other services you can get may include a haircut for as low as 8 bucks, carpentry work, cabinets, outbuildings, stairs, etc., electrical work done at your home. I didn't. I didn't know. I remember like the Votech guys would work on your car for you for free, especially the auto body guys in, in the Votech school when I went to high school. Uh, but I didn't know that they would ever do anything where they would send people out to your house. But I guess it's a way to get real world uh, hands on education. It would be from a technical college or vocational or agricultural school. You know, they actually teach you how to do stuff instead of just how to think. Uh, that's pretty cool. Now. Haircuts for eight bucks. I can get a haircut for about eight to ten dollars at like supercuts or pro cuts. I don't know if I want a student cutting my hair. I'm not sure about that. Uh, guess I don't have much to lose though. I just got kind of scraggly hair to begin with. But that's up to you guys whether you want to do that. But I thought that was a good one. And here's another one. And uh, 
This one comes from David. David says, I know the time passes for submissions to this, but here's one anyway. I own a piece of land in the woods. It came with some apple and plum trees already on it. Now I save every fruit seed from cherry pits to peach pits and plant them when I go to my land. I'm not expecting much, but it really doesn't take much effort, and it can't hurt Dave. Well, absolutely it can't take much effort or hurt to do this. And I'll tell you what, Dave, the thing is, if you get any trees out of this, you're going to get very hardy trees. Um, you might be surprised at the production you'll get out of them. Only the very best are going to survive, the best genetics, and the most adaptable uh, plants are going to make it that way because you're just pretty much putting them out there and leaving them to themselves. Uh, believe it or not, that's how a lot of things like peaches and apples ended up all over our country to begin with. Peaches are actually not native to North America, but they spread so rapidly uh, once people started planting them here that later people took them to be a native plant. Uh, I think they're actually from Asia. So that's an, an interesting little side note there. Peaches, though, I'm going to give you guys one tip on planting peaches from pits. If you'll let the pit dry out, And you'll crack it open, usually a vice, and putting it point to point on a vice, and turning it real slow to it cracks open gently. Inside the shell, there's a thing that looks almost like an almond, because an almond and a peach are basically very, very close cousins, almost brothers. Uh, one was in, you know, enhanced so that it would produce a bigger seed, and one was enhanced so it would produce a larger uh, flesh on the outside of the fruit. And that's really the only difference there. That little almond-looking thing, that's what you want to plant. You'll get better results if you crack it open and plant that internal pit. Uh, or internal seed inside the pit. So, um, those are your two money saving tips for the day. And now I want to do something a little bit different. I'm going to play for you an audio by this cute little girl. I mean, she's just adorable. Uh, that I got on YouTube and it came from Carson in Canada, who we get calls from all the time. And I'm going to talk today about my idea, uh, in just a moment for a new alternative to things like the organic label. And I think some people are trying to run way to the extreme with this that are offering their help and their input and want to do this kind of like the Joel Salat and Beyond Organic thing. I actually want to pull a little bit below what organic is supposed to be, but isn't, uh, and make it that. And then, well, we'll wait a minute. I want to kind of drive home this point. I was going to play this video anyway, but these mesh together. So I'm going to play this video for you first, the audio portion of it. And she's little and a little nervous, so she pauses a lot. I'm going to take the pauses out so it goes a little faster. But I want you to hear this project with a potato and what this little girl learned in her project with this potato. Hi, my name is Elise. I decided to do an experiment on how long it would take for a potato to grow vines. We went, me and my grandma went to the grocery store to get some potatoes. A sweet potato. All you do is put a sweet potato in a glass of water and wait for it to grow vines. We took a sweet potato and waited for three weeks. Nothing happened. We took another potato and for three more weeks. Nothing happened. So we talked to the produce man at the store and he said, well, these will never grow vines. At the farms, they spray them with a chemical called budnip. We should try one of our organic sweet potatoes. And over a month, it finally grew these wimpy little vines. Over that time, we went to Roots Market, Roots Organic Food Market, and got a sweet potato there. It only took one week for it to sprout. And look at it now! We, I decided to Google budnip. Budnip is a chemical that they put on 
vegetables. They also spray budnip on blueberries, carrots, onions, spinach, tomatoes, beets, and cranberries. It goes, budnip goes through the whole vegetable, so washing it won't make a difference. It's also called chlorprofam. Chlorprofam can kill animals that they've tested it on. It can even cause tumors. With all of the chemicals, no wonder so many people are getting diagnosed with cancer. Which potato would you rather eat? So when I said that little gal's cute, you might have heard her voice there and thought, boy, she's cute. you got to watch the video, and you see how cute she really is. And uh, But it's amazing sometimes how children can point out the obvious that adults just seem to ignore and not pay attention to. What she's talking about is something that, that's widely known, I think, by a lot of people that are gardeners, that you can't go get potatoes out of the grocery store, stick them in the ground, expect them to grow well. Sometimes they will, but they usually don't, and that's because they're treated with a chemical, this budnit stuff, and it's designed to allow them to be stored longer uh, and transported more often and not really cared to as much with the way they're handled, but it's why your potatoes take a long time before they start to sprout on you. Uh, where if you've ever grown your own potatoes, if you don't treat them just right from a t temperature and light and uh, humidity standpoint, uh, they'll start to sprout right away and grow because that's what they are. They're, they're the, 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 the next generation of potatoes. That's what their purpose is, is to reproduce. But then we saturate them with this chemical and we say, well, this is great. We can take these potatoes and put them in a plastic bag and throw them on the floor in the closet. And, you know, they'll last a month without sprouting and they won't be sprouting in the, in the grocery stores and all. But we then we fail to ask, well, what the hell is this chemical actually doing? As you can hear, it's not really a good thing to be eating. And my favorite part of it was when she said this. You got to watch the video to see her face when she kind of shakes her head as she says this. Um, you know, it goes in the whole plant, so washing it won't do any good. You can't wash it off. This is the same crap I hear from people when I talk about Roundup and atrazine and stuff like that being spread on corn and soy. This is just wash your produce. You can't wash it off when it's inside the cellular structure of the plant. And that's what's going on a lot. And that's going to lead me to this new topic or this new idea that I had for a self-certification process for um, gardeners and, and uh, home growers and small-scale producers and basically anybody that wants to produce food and put it on somebody else's plate. And I want to make sure you understand how inclusive I want this to be. If you are a home gardener, and you pretty much grow for your own family, but you also give away some food to your neighbors, I don't care if you sell it or not, I want you to participate in this. If you're a home gardener and you generally don't give away any food, which I don't believe anybody that's a successful gardener is um, capable of not giving away some food. There's always going to be more than you can use. But I don't care what it is. I want anybody growing food to be able to participate in this. That's why there's no cost. That's why the oversight is community-based and self-discipline-based and is designed that, that, you know, basically can somebody come look at what you're doing? Can anybody that wants to, within reason and with a reasonable appointment and depending on the situation, come look at what you're doing? And that doesn't mean that somebody can just start going around and go, I am. And by the way, we've come up with a name, and I had a lot of great suggestions, but this was my favorite one. came in from a listener, and it's called AgriTrue. And I've registered agritrue.com, .org, .net, .mobi, and uh, we're going to build something around this. And the reason I like AgriTrue is it's about truth in agriculture. So I've gotten a lot of feedback from people that want to help me with this, and I want to dial you back a bit, and I want you to understand why. I want anybody listening to me right now to realize how important this is and how big a movement this can become if we do this right and we work together on it. 
I do not want to take this thing to a level that necessarily is at the equivalency or beyond organic. And that's the word I keep hearing from people, beyond organic. And here's why. I think that what consumers really want is to be able to go buy food and know certain things. No hormones, no antibiotics when it comes to animals. And the animal, animals are ethically treated. And ethical is somewhat subjective because a person from PETA would say if you interfere with the animal in any way, you're not being ethical. And we, those people are not, so we're trying to, not trying to cater to them. But I think anybody can look at factory chickens on a chicken truck on their way to a slaughterhouse and, and look at that and go, that's not ethical treatment. Or look at chickens that are kept in such close confinement that they have to burn the tips of their beaks off so they don't peck each other's eyeballs out, that stand in their own shit all day long and go, that's not ethical. So I think we can come to a reasonable expectation of what's, what's ethical and what's not ethical with animal treatment. Um, I also think that, you know, I don't want to say that if you ever use an antibiotic on your animal that it's not an organic operation because antibiotics have a purpose. It's for treating an acute condition. So antibiotics would be you don't use antibiotics as a preventative. That any animal that's given antibiotics, you have to, you know, use antibiotics for a specific reason. And then there has to be a certain amount of time after those antibiotics are used that that animal's not either slaughtered or, or any of its offshoots are used for, for production. This makes sense to me. On the, on the vegetable side, the fruits and vegetable nuts side, I think this is the place where people really are concerned uh, lately with the crap like you just heard with this bud nip being sprayed on every potato in your supermarket unless it's organically marked. But they don't want GMOs. They don't want chemicals. Uh, they don't want anything in their food that, that, that would cause toxicity uh, in their bodies. And that doesn't necessarily mean that if you buy organic, you're going to get that. And it doesn't necessarily mean that if you don't buy organic, you know. It, it, the, the organic label has become, as far as I'm concerned, moot. It, it really has. I, I have determined that it just has no value to me anymore whatsoever, especially if I am in a grocery store or, you know, like a Walmart or a big box store or something like that. When it means something to me is when I'm standing at a farmer's market and the person that grew my food is standing there in front of me and says this is organically grown. I don't even ask what he means by that. I don't care if he even understands the whole organic label, but I know that that food is probably a hundred times better for me than anything I'm going to get at Kroger or Winn-Dixie or Walmart, even if it says organic on the label. Because I know the way that the, the mainstream is doing this now. So my thought is, why would I try to basically just say, well, here's what organic's supposed to be. We're going to make it the same thing and go beyond that. So I've come up with kind of a vision. I'll publish a document tomorrow with the initial vision. It's not written in stone. It is subject to change. But one of the things, for instance, that I'm thinking we don't need to completely uh, push out is, let's say, a person that uses some level of fertilizer. Now, what I would say is uh, the counterpart is that for every, let's say, pound of fertilizer used, seven pounds of equivalent organic matter and nutrient enrichment. And when I say organic matter, I mean living matter, carbon-based matter, right? Not not the USDA's version of that that word uh, have to be used. There's some sort of thing. The pl person has to have a plan in place that improves their soil quality and disclose what that plan is. Uh, but here's what I really want to do. I want to set a minimum standard for animals and, and plant foods. It says that if it says AgriTrue on it, that, that this is the minimum level of, of performance. And then when you set up your, the way I'm envisioning this is you'll set up your account and it'll be free. You'll just set up, I'm an AgriTrue producer and you'll have certain questions that you have to answer. And you tick all those boxes and the system says, yes, you qualify. Okay, then the system generates based on whether you produce plant or animals 
uh, a survey or two surveys, one for each, because there's different things we have to look at there. And it asks you all the questions that a concerned consumer at your stand or, or in your backyard or at the store or at the CSA or anybody would ever ask. Do you use this? Do you use that? Do, how do you feed your, what are your animals fed? For instance, I bought pastured chicken this weekend, but it's actually chicken that's fed some corn and soy, uh, pellets, but it's, it's fed at 70% of the, uh, the recommended amounts, and then the chickens are tractored across the land, and they have to forage for a different additional 30% of their, their diet. Well, that chicken was amazing. It was totally different than anything I had in a store. When I cooked it, there was a little tiny splotch of grease in the bottom of the pan instead of this huge pile. It was a totally different... And I know that chicken was good for me. Would that chicken have qualified as organic? I don't know. But I would sure like that as one of my choices. But if I wanted chicken that had been completely free-range pastured, then this producer's little certificate, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this yet, but right now you can set up these little things. They're kind of like a barcode for a barcode scanner, but they're square. And they're designed to be used by smartphones. You take your smartphone and you scan it with the camera lens and it'll pull up a website. Well, my vision is that this will work this way. You'll have your AgriTrue certificate and at the bottom of it will be that square. Person will scan that square and it will pull up their profile. There'll be pictures of their operation, their philosophy on farming and growing, and the survey with all the questions. And the questions are either answered or the respondent has chosen not to answer this question. And that way the consumer decides how much they want and, and, and how far they are, you know, they want to go. And they can make the best decision based on what's available to them. I'd like to recommend, I'm not going to put it on the air today, but I'd like to recommend you read an article. That's, uh, I just mentioned uh, Countryside and Small Stock Journal, and the latest edition has an article in it called All or Nothing Equals Nothing, and that article was very much on my mind as I'd begun to formulate this. So I know I probably haven't done the best job of describing this. I don't have the, uh, the, the outline that I've put together in front of me. I didn't even think about it when I left for the office this morning. But basically, let me rehash it for you guys. So those of you that are trying to be like health Nazis with this thing can understand why we would back up with this. I want maximum participation. Okay, I want anybody that's producing food that's of significantly better quality than what we can buy in the grocery stores participating in this. There are certain things, though, that I believe that we should not do. Pesticides and herbicides on our food are a no-go. Okay, um, I guess I got to find out what you classify this type of chemical, this budnip, as. Is it a, a chemical retardant? Whatever it is, that needs to go on the list. That needs to not be there. When we confine animals for the purpose of livestock, there needs to be a reasonable standard of, of how big an area they are, and they'd ever need to be sitting in their own excrement. Okay, um, there are there are you know there are I do not want genetically modified food in my body if I can help it. And if we can set that bar at a reasonable level that most small-scale producers are probably already meeting and say, let's get you guys involved with this, and then the whole point is for this thing to be a free market system. Anybody can use the name as long as they comply with the basic uh, minimal standards. And anybody can go out there and set up a watchdog group and say, if you, you know, basically say to the producers, if you want a third party verification, you can pay us, we'll come out and do it for you. And if anybody wants to set up levels with beyond that, they can do that. So basically anything that you can think of that you would want as an additional standard can be added into this, but the standard is the baseline. 
And the producer's profile is the most important thing. So imagine this. You're walking through your farmer's market. There's a guy. He's got rabbits. He's got chickens. And, and they're frozen and, and slaughtered and ready to go for you. He's got uh, peppers. He's got onions. He's got potatoes. He's got all this stuff laid out. And there's a certificate. It says AgriTrue. Up comes the smartphone. Beep. There's this profile right in front of you. Do you use following, you know, whatever? How are your chickens raised? What are they fed? How are your rabbits raised? What are they fed? What does your chicken house look like? Post a pic. There's a picture of his chickens, how he keeps them. There's a picture of his rabbits, how he keeps them. So that the consumer then is actually the person that sets the real standard. Because if you go in and you say, well, AgriTrue is pretty good, but I want chicken that is not ever kept in a chicken tractor. I want free-range, paddock-range chickens the way Paul Wheaton says it should be done. You don't do that. Okay, I'm going to go buy from somebody else. Well, what if there is nobody else to buy from? What if that's the best quality chicken at that market? You can now make a decision. Is it good enough for you or isn't it? And the market will drive the producers to the place that's best for everybody. That's my vision. I want to take a break from that now and just kind of go on with the show because I could go on for a long time. When I finally flesh this thing all the way out, I'll get like a basic blog up on it with some things that kind of set the vision for it and start getting some coding laid down. I'll do a whole show on where this is going and what it can be. But I, I want you guys to kind of see my vision here and not just the vision of the way I want it to be, but what it can be. I believe that we can take this into something that in a year... We can have tens of thousands of members that say, I'm growing to the agritude's true standard, and here's what I'm doing beyond that. Here's my farm, here's my operation, here's my livestock, here's how I grow, here's how I harvest. So that anyone, anywhere, with a computer uh, can become agritrue overnight and just upload a few pictures and things like that. And I'm thinking of some ways to save on hosting because this can get very, very expensive, very, very fast if it takes off like I think it is. So allowing hosting to be done at like Image Shack or, or Flickr or whatever, so that saves on a lot of the space. And then we're just doing profile and text information. I think that's, that's kind of the way to go with this. And uh, I, I'd like your input, and I'd like you to understand something. Um, I'm not going to make this into something that's very difficult for a producer to be part of. Uh, that's the entire point here. It's not just that organic's not good enough. Organic is cost prohibitive. Organic is not a free market system anymore. Organic is a system run by the government now. I want a system run by the market. And that means that getting into the system has to be relatively easy by doing basic common sense things and not putting crap in food people don't want there and treating animals with respect. And then the market can dictate how far and the producer is free to do whatever they want beyond the standard and the producer is free to market what they do beyond the standard. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and get into the uh, next email that I have here. Uh, this is also kind of on farmland. It comes from Christopher Griffin, uh, which makes me think of the show Family Guy. And he says some people are finally getting it. I want to read a little bit of this to you, and I want to explain to you why it's not necessarily a good thing and why it may be the next big problem for our farmers in taking away some of the last wealth they have. Okay, and this article is from um, MSNBC, and it's called Down on the Farm Investors See Big Potential. And remember, I told you guys two to three years ago that farmland would be one of the up-and-coming investments, that it would be one of the newest sources of wealth, that rural land, small producers, large tracts of land, all this stuff would be getting driven up in price right through the recession. So here we go. Uh, this was on July 16, 2011, this came out. And, uh, of course, that's only two days ago. Here we go, New York. Brandon Janowski 
has never planted seeds or brought in a harvest. He doesn't even own overalls. Yet when 430 acres of Michigan cornfield was auctioned last summer, it was Janowski, a brash 33-year-old software engineer, who made the winning bid. It was so high, $4 million, 25% above the next highest. And some farmers stood, shook their heads, and walked out. Janowski figures he got the land cheap. Corn back then was around $4, he says, from his office in Tulsa, Oklahoma, stealing a glance at prices per bushel on the computer. Corn rose to almost $8 in June and trades now at about $7. A new breed of gentleman farmer is shaking up the American heartland. Rich investors with no ties to farming, no dirt under their nails, are confident enough to wager big on a patch of earth, betting that's a smart investment because food will only get more expensive around the world. They're buying wheat fields in Kansas, rows of Iowa corn, and acres of soybeans in Indiana. And though farmers still fill most of the seats in the, at auctions, newcomers are growing in number and variety. A Seattle computer executive, a Kansas City lawyer, a publishing executive from Chicago, and a Boston money m manager. Regulators are sounding alarms. The value of Iowa farmland has doubled in six years. Think about that. I want to just read that to you again. You know, when you think about the real estate market as a whole in America... Over the last six years. So the last six years, we're going back to 2005. 2005 to 2011. The value of Iowa farmland has doubled in six years. How many other places have doubled in six years? So it's not a natural occurrence. I mean, I said this would be a good investment, yes, but this is not a natural occurrence. This is a, a, um, a, a speculator market-driven occurrence. So this is going beyond its actual appreciation in real value to a speculated value. A few. So in other words, what I'm saying is that it's not that the land won't ever have that value. It's that people are buying today's land at tomorrow's perceived value like a stock instead of buying land for its value today, which is traditional. In Nebraska and Kansas, it's up more than 50%. Prices have risen so fast, regulators have begun sounding alarms, and farmers are beginning to voice concerns. Quote, I never thought prices would get this high, end quote, said Robert Huber, 73, who sold his 500-acre corn and soybean farm in Carmel, Indiana, for $3.8 million, or $7,600 an acre, triple what he paid for it a decade ago. At the price we got, it's going to take a long time for him to pay it off, and that's if the crop prices stay high. Buyers say soaring farm values simply reflect underlying fundamentals. Crop prices have risen because of demand for food is growing around the world, and while supply of arable land is shrinking. And you can read the rest if you want to. I'll put a link to it. It's a fairly long article. But here's my concern. What you see when you see these people like this buying land that have no intention of farming it themselves, the only thing they can do is then lease the land to farmers. So we've already, if you remember the 80s, we had Farm Aid and Willie Nelson, and the farmers were losing the farms, losing the farms, losing the farms, losing the farms. But at least they had the farms. They were using the farms and the underlying mortgage value of the land to purchase the equipment and the materials and the seed. And if they got a bad year or even a semi-crappy year, it put a real kink in the works. Two in a row and the farm was gone. It was lost. It was auctioned off. But some other farmer bought it. Now, there's always been sharecropping and there's always been farm lease land and things like that. But generally speaking in America, if you were a farmer, you owned some land. You might be farming a thousand acres if you were a fairly large operation, and you might only own a hundred of it, but you owned a hundred and you leased the rest, or you might own forty and lease a hundred. I mean, this is a very common thing. 
But when we start to commercialize this thing, and everybody and their brother with some extra money starts jumping in on it, and people start committing what we call geographic arbitrage. So the person that's living in New Jersey, on New Jersey money, when they see an acre of land for $5,000, that's cheap. That's dirt cheap. They, they, they can't pay taxes on an acre of land for $5,000 a year. And it's zoned agriculture, and they look at the taxes on it, and they're paying you know, $15, $20 an acre in taxes or less. And they know they can lease that land to a farmer who will pay at least what their land payment is. Well, they're done. They're going to make the buy. And the more money like that that comes in, the bigger this gets. Now, here's what gets really scary. Then you get a group of large-scale investors together, and they start to put together like farmland mutual funds, farmland ETFs, and they start bringing billions of dollars to play on this equation. This will drive up the price of land all across America in the rural communities, uh, the, the land that you're going to live on and the land that you're going to farm on. The big problem is what will happen if this keeps up, and no one's telling you this yet, and this is where I tell you that sometimes I do bring you things so far ahead of the curve. Right now, the price of food is driving the price of the land. That's exactly what's happening to a degree as this, this new money starts to come in. Corn eight bucks, I'll pay more for the land that makes the corn. If this goes on long enough and if enough money comes in and it gets hot enough, which it's going to, eventually the price of land will drive the price of the food. We will flip the dynamic on its head. If we drive the price of the land up high enough, the farmer then can't afford to produce the food for less than X, right? X minus Y equals broke in that equation. Whatever Y is doesn't matter. Now, the landowner can't afford to lease the land for much less than his cost of retaining the land. So he can't drop the price. So the farmer's screwed, the landowner's screwed, so we're going to pay for it in food production. Now, if you do this on land that's not real, real productive, it doesn't work. But if you do it on the most productive land there, you could say, well, the market will set the price of food. And if the price of food, well, when that, that, they just, well, okay, fine, we're not producing. Well, that's going to drive the price. It's just like the errors with the oil. That's what's going to go on here. This is why I believe that right now it makes a lot of sense for if you're looking for, if you're telling me I'm sitting on a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars of cash, I don't know what to do with it, to be looking for land that can be very productive, small scale farmland in the neighborhood of, let's say, four to twenty acre parcels, uh, and timberland as well, uh, especially timberland that can be harvested for Denver and converted to agricultural purposes. And I'm not saying that in a negative way either. I'm not talking about flat squares. You could you could do a lot with the permaculture model in there. Um, but those types of pieces of land are going to be worth a lot of money in the future. Uh, because more and more people are going to be looking to do these things for themselves. Uh, I think it's really important that we stay on top of this. And when you start asking me what to do with money, I might tell you this is a better investment than a set of solar panels. The solar panels can produce one thing for you, energy, and that is all. And if you move, moving them with you is somewhat difficult. I'm not putting them down. I'm not saying not to do it. I'm just saying if you're, you know, if you don't have a blue sky budget like most of us don't, and you're thinking agricultural land or that, agricultural land can produce food, it can produce income, and it can produce equity gain. So when I put solar panels on a roof, they'll produce for me for maybe 20 years before I have to upgrade them, or they're shot and, and, and spent. Um, if I so they actually become worth less over time, not worthless, but worth less over time. When I hold good quality real estate, if I buy it right, buy it smart, it becomes worth more over time. And I can also create it if I want to lease it to a farmer, I can create a cash flow off of it. So I think doing this in small scale with the type of people that will be growing agri-true, by the way, would be the way to do this. Um, four acres 
is a massive piece of land if you're growing things in the kind of the new methodology where people will know their grower. That's that's a pretty big piece, and 20 is huge. And there's a lot of people that are going to start with four, and then they're going to go, I could do a couple more acres, but they can't really afford the land, and you can lease to them. And if you're leasing to someone that's improving your land, they're actually making your land worth more as you go. Just a, a, a thought. I got some interesting questions to tie in with this as we go on. But the next one is, that I have today is really cool. It comes from Ben. And Ben says, uh, uh, just says howdy in his name. Uh, and he's, uh, Vetzuki vet, vet on the forums. And there's just a link for me. And it's 12 dozen places to educate yourself online. Let me say that again. So, because the first time I thought I was 12, right? 12 dozen. So that's 144 places. 12 times 12, 144 calculator generation. Don't use it. You can remember that one. Uh, 12 dozen places to educate yourself online for free. And there's uh, links to all of them. And it's a bunch of different categories. And I just want to read uh, a few of them for you. This is on Mark and Angel Hack Life is the name of the blog, markandangel.com. And uh, under Science and Health, MIT Open Courseware. MIT Open Courseware is a free web-based product publication of MIT course material that reflects almost all the undergraduate and graduate subjects uh, taught at MIT. So you can get lectures from MIT, a place they would never let me into, will still teach me if I want to know. Um, Science.gov. Science.gov searches over 42 databases and over 2,000 selected websites from 14 federal agencies offering 200 million pages of authoritative U.S. government science information, including research and development studies. I'm sure there's a lot of global warming crap there, but there's probably a lot of good stuff, too. Um, Geology.com. Information about geology and earth sciences to visitors without charge. Uh, going down to business and money. MIT Sloan School of Management. You can get free courses from there. Uh, U.S. Small Business Administrative Training Network. Um, Kutztown University of Pennsylvania uh, Small Business Development Center offers more than 80 free business courses online. You want to get a business course? There you go. Uh, the Street University, if you're just starting out as a stock and bond investor, need a refresher course, this is a place to learn what you need. History and World Culture, uh, University of Washington, Open UW, explore a variety of learning and several free history-centric online courses from the University of Washington. Uh, MIT Open Courseware in History. MIT History faculty offers 70 subjects in the area of ancient North American, European, and East Asian, Middle Eastern history. Uh, moving down the law, Duke Law Center for the Public Domain. Duke University is counted amongst the best schools in the South. If you're interested in law, Duke's Open Courseware subject area can go a long way toward helping you learn more about our justice system. And there's a whole bunch there. Wesleyan, uh, Stanford Law, Harvard Law School, Uh, computer science and engineering. Once again, uh, MIT Open Courseware Engineering and Computer Science. MIT Open Courseware is a free web-based publication of MIT's course materials. It reflects almost all the undergraduate and grad. So uh, they do it basically in every subject. Um, New York State University Computer Sciences. Uh, free, free computer tutorials, Programmer 101, Google Code University, Mathematics, Oxford University, UMass. Um, math.com, in, 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 Intuit Mathematics, uh, English and Communications, Yale University, uh, MIT, uh, just leading a couple of them here. There's tons of these things. Multiple subjects and miscellaneous, Capella University, University of Southern Queensland, uh, iTunes U, that's a great one, Brigham Young, uh, YouTube University, uh, 
free books and reading recommendations. And there's just a ton of this stuff. So when I say that, that you can get a great education without walking into the doors of a college classroom, I, I also, I think, should once in a while tell you where to go get information from. So this is an awesome post on this blog, an awesome source of information. And I'm not going to tell you which ones to use. You know what you want to learn about. Pick and choose. But check this one out today because it really is an amazing resource. Ben also sent me a link to a YouTube video. I'm not going to play the audio of it because a lot of the audio is in people that are using some sort of African dialect and there's subtitles so you can read it. So it's uh, it, it wouldn't really play well on the air without the uh, without the video to go with it. But it is called The Man Who Stopped the Desert. And it's about a gentleman in Africa on the Sahara that has done some amazing things with reclaiming the land and helping people grow crops and planting trees. And I think it would be one that you'd want to see. So I'll put a link to the trailer of that video. I actually purchased the DVD today. After it shows up, I'll let you know more about what's on it and things like that. Uh, the next one comes to me from, I'm just going to say, a deputy sheriff, okay, uh, who does not want to... Uh, to divulge who he is because of this. But I told you about a thing going on in Little Rock um, recently, a couple of months ago, that was going to happen this month. And it was a sovereign citizen uh, symposium put on by the Southern Poverty Law Center, who I find to be some of the lowest scum on the face of the planet, honestly. And I had told you, I think, by the time you know that I put this out, uh, and a little bit after that, that I learned a lot about this sovereign citizen movement that makes me sick. Because it's people out there justifying what they're doing, calling themselves sovereign citizens, that do not mean what I mean or what you likely mean when you call yourself a sovereign citizen. People that don't think the law applies to them and things like that. But I'm just going to read to you this guy's, it's kind of his basic after-action review. And I think he was very fair with this, and uh, maybe more fair than I would be. Um, but I'm reporting what was brought to me by this deputy sheriff, uh, not my opinion here. Let me read it verbatim what he said. Well, I just got back from the Southern Poverty Law Center class. It was interesting and informative from a Leo perspective. I was paying close attention to anything that could be construed as anti-prep or anti-survivalist information. Most of the class had to do with the KKK, Black Panther type groups, biker gangs, skinheads, etc., etc. The sovereign citizen part had to do with people like po the posse comitatus type people that believe there is no legitimate government above the level of the county sheriff. They put liens on law enforcement officers, use face license plates, refuse to obtain real driver's licenses and birth certificates. They are pretty strange. The only thing that disturbed me about this class was when the instructor started on to the militias. She brought up all the instances where militias were doing illegal acts, such as making explosives, buying and building unlicensed automatic weapons, and plotting to kill law enforcement officers. That part made sense for the class, but then she started talking about legitimate militias as being something to keep an eye on, and that government crackdowns of the 90s dropped the number of militias considerably, but they are making a comeback. I think this is a good thing personally as long as they are pro-Leo. The thing that really pissed me off is that she used a YouTube clip from a guy that I subscribed to by the screen name TN Outdoors 9. It was a clip of a night shoot at Knob Creek Machine Gun Shoot. She showed it for shock value into the class and explained that many anti-government militias use the shoot as a meeting ground and opportunity to train with full automatic weapons and explosives. To her credit, she did say the shoot was totally legit legal, legitimate operation, but you could tell she had a personal bias against it. If you have any questions about anything I didn't cover in the class, feel free to ask anything you want to know. Uh, I'm glad to be a watchdog of our constitutional rights. Keep up the good work. 
Deputy Sheriff, we'll leave it at that. Well, Deputy Sheriff, first of all, I want to ask, are you a member of Oath Keepers? If you're not, please go sign up for Oath Keepers today. And that's for anybody out there that's a law enforcement officer that listens to this show. If you believe in what we talk about here, you should be part of Oath Keepers. Uh, just a little public service announcement there. Uh, as far as questions, I'm going to throw that out to the audience. You guys tell me. Email me. Question about, uh, let's see, what should we do? Uh, Sovereign citizen question. Any questions you have for this deputy sheriff, send them to me. I'll forward them on and I'll do an update for you in the future. Uh, a couple observations here that I have. Um, it's, it's very clear to me that this group is not in the business of helping law enforcement officers stay alive, but in uh, oppressing people they don't agree with. That, that's who the Southern Poverty Law Center really is. On the militia front... Um, I think that we need a rebirth of the militias. I, I really do. And I, I also want to know, this is a question for this deputy sheriff, for anybody else. Please tell me all the instances where militias were doing illegal acts, such as making explosives, buying up unlicensed automatic weapons, and tr plotting to kill law enforcement officers. Where was this actually happening with any legitimate militia? And I believe the instances of even the illegitimate militias is very, very low. You know, everybody wants to associate Timothy McVeigh with the militia because at one time he was part of a Michigan militia before he supposedly acting alone uh, blew up the the the, uh, fur, the, you know, the, uh, the federal building in, in Oklahoma City. Um, here's my question: So, so we, do we say that um, military uh, members, members of the United States Army, blow up buildings because he was part of the army at one time? Um, did did he ever get breastfed by his mother? So we say breastfeeders did it. I mean, did he ever drink water? So anybody drink? I mean, this is stupid that we even associate. You know, remember the guy was kicked the hell out. The Michigan militia said, "No, dude, you're you, you don't fit in here. Go." Um, so I I don't know. This bugs me, but I do at least understand now while why legitimate law enforcement would be concerned with this concept of a sovereign citizen movement. I am very dissatisfied with the people behind it. Because I think you're ruining a, ruining a legitimate term. This is how I view sovereignty of, of a citizen. The United States of America is a federal republic of states. And the state is made up of a confederacy of those states together that, that make the federation up as a whole. And the federal government has power that is limited. The states then have their own power limited by the citizens. And then the citizens retain the greatest power. So the sovereignty of the United States and its component parts lie in the individual, not the government. So the government exists at the pleasure of the people, not the people have freedom at the pleasure of the government. Which means that when we don't like something, we have a means to change it. We can do it through the ballot box. We can do it through activism. We can do it today with the Internet by spreading information. But we, the citizens, are in charge, and we are sovereign as individuals. And if there's not a law that says we can't do something, then we can. And if, there is, if there's not a law that says we can do something, we still can. Right? We don't have to. The Constitution, Ninth Amendment. Just because something's not there as a right doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So for our rights to be restricted, there has to be a law against it, not simply the absence of a law or a code that says we can. And if we don't like the law, we have means to change it. That's sovereignty. And that means that I only have to do the minimum of what's required by law. And I don't have to do any more. And I don't have to conform to what society wants I have to just simply work within the law. And if I don't like the law somewhere, I can move somewhere else. That's how this country is supposed to be run. And I believe we're losing that. And whenever I've said sovereign citizen, that's what I've meant. And this crap where, oh, I can drive on public roads without a driver's license because the Constitution gives me right to travel. The Constitution does give you right to travel. 
The Constitution does not give you the right to, to, to operate a motor vehicle capable of killing other people on roads that were paid for with public dollars. You think you can drive without a driver's license? You're absolutely correct. You can drive without a, a driver's license. You can drive intoxicated. You can drive without insurance. The only thing you have to do to be able to do that is drive on private roads where you or the owner of those private roads says you can drive. On a public road, you have to comply with a public system. That's how it works. You don't like it? I'm sorry. So there's the after-action review. It sounds like it wasn't as bad as I anticipated, but it also sounds like it's being run by people that clearly have a bias against anything that doesn't fit their political agenda. I do not believe for one second that organizations like the Southern Poverty Law Center or any type of activist organization should be doing seminars for law enforcement officials. I don't think it's, it, it makes sense at all because they're bringing their personal bias to the equation. I'm going to let that go for now, um, but at least you know what happened, and I'm glad we had a voice and some eyes on the inside there. Next question. This has to do with the land ownership thing that we talked about and rural land and all. This comes from Jim. Jim says, what are your thoughts on buying land that has a tr history of corn production? Chances are extremely good such land has GMO corn and crud sprayed on it. I recently checked out a property that had at least two years of corn production and wondered about its potential harm for future production. The field was currently lush with cow grass, though, and had grown weed as well. Oh, and the house on it sucked bad. We kind of decided to pass on it because it would cost more to fix the house than it was really worth. Thanks, Jim. Um, so those two are unrelated. But on, on the corn growing... If it's been under cultivation for a long time and it's been using GMO seed and using Roundup spray, um, I, I probably would pass on the piece of land. If it had happened a, a few times and, or in, in rotation with other crops and I could you know, count on one or two hands over 10 years the number of times uh, a herbicide had been completely sprayed on the land, I wouldn't necessarily pass on it. I think somebody has to rehabilitate that land. And we have a choice. We can either let somebody that will do the same thing buy that land and keep doing it, or we can heal the land. Uh, the problem with buying it if it's been done excessively is it's going to be very hard to grow anything. Because if there's enough Roundup in the soil, it's going to take a long time for that stuff to, to kind of uh, get flushed out of the system uh, and to break down. It's not biodegradable the way they used to say it was. It used to say on Roundup, biodegradable. It doesn't say that anymore. Why? Because it's not. Because, you know, we, we have cows that are eating GMO-based feeds that are crapping it out after they digested it, and the herbicide is still in there. So we know that this stuff can kind of pass through. But we also have to live in a real world. We have, remember what I said about all or nothing. So my concern would be if you, if you have land that's been too heavily um, cultivated with modern techniques and modern chemicals, how long it's going to take before you're going to be able to go back to a natural form of production and get a yield. All right. Once the yield starts to come, I believe that we're in a pretty healthy state and the land can only get better from there. So I wouldn't write it off, but I would take a very close look at how long it's going to take to heal this land and how much I want to do to heal it. Uh, if it was a thousand acres growing corn and soy for the last 10 years that had been sprayed with atrazine and Roundup every year multiple times, Uh, I, I, I don't think I could make that kind of an investment in that kind of land. I really couldn't. Uh, if it was a piece of land that had that done to it, I, I, I don't know. It, it's going to be, every situation is different. It's definitely a concern. Um, but 
if it's if it's been rotated through and there's only been crops like that, you know, every fifth rotation, it's probably land that within a couple of years you can get into a relatively healthy state. Would it be as good as pristine land that had never been touched by anything but a pure organic farmer? No. Um, but we all have to make do with what we can find. So I wouldn't write it off, but I, I would work real hard to heal it once I got there. And that means lots of organic matter, lots of pasturing, uh, no more use of any of those chemicals and things like that. Uh, next question comes from Danny. Danny says, I'm at my wit's end with a friend who doesn't think our coming economic problems are a big deal. She sees no problem with creating money out of thin air and sees inflation as something to help her pay off her student loan. Good luck with that. She says it won't hurt for us to fast one day a week. Is there? <laughs> oh, what if food gets too expensive? I just won't eat one day a week. Okay, there you go. Is there anything you would say to a person like this? Or should I write her off as a lost cause on the issue and let her learn the hard way? Thanks for all you do. Jack, Danny. Um, I don't know if she's a lost cause, but if you keep pushing, your cause is lost. Let me put it to you that way. When someone throws up resistance to these ideas, I'm going to promise you something. The harder you push, the greater they will resist. In forums, we get people into forums that are little trolls, little, little maggots to get in there and throw little snippy crap in there just to stir up the nest. If they, if, if the person moderating those, they're immediately deleted and banned, and that's the way to handle it. But if they're not, and people start um, um, pushing back on the troll, they call it feeding the troll because it gives the troll more power, and it abdicates your power over to the troll. I'm not saying this girl's a troll. I'm just saying it works the same way. When somebody puts up resistance, I don't care if you're talking about politics, money, religion, whatever it is. Whenever you're talking about something, and a person begins to resist, and you start to push. They will continue to push back. When I do talks uh, about certain things, especially when I used to do talks about sales techniques, I would always have a person in the audience stand up, and I would say, I want you to put up your right hand like you're about you know, to swear on the Bible. And when they put their hand up like that in that position, I would put my right hand up against their hand, and, as soon, and I would start to really lightly push their hand backwards. And I would say only maybe 1% to one-half of a percent of people would ruin the uh, explanation for me. And I think most of them had seen it before, and they'd kind of just limp and let their arm come back. 99.5% of people, when you do this, as soon as you start to push their hand, they start to resist. You start to feel resistance. And you push a little harder, and they resist a little harder. And if you look at them when you're doing it, and you engage them in the eyes, they push even harder. And the more you can engage them with your eyes, the harder you can get. And you can get them to where they're pushing like they're trying to push a wall. And then you stop, and you say... Did I ask you to push? And they say no. They said you asked me to put my hand up. I said did I ask you? I'll say did I ask you to resist? And they'll say no. And I'll say so why did you resist and why did you push back? And they said because I just thought it was the thing to do. Well, when you get somebody into an issue like this and you're pushing and they're pushing, they will push back as hard as you push forward. And it can be fun and interesting to debate people with that, but you have to be careful with who you're doing it with. Unless it's something like it's a religious debate, don't do it with somebody who's not strong enough in their faith to uh, to, to be able to just take it as what it is and, and eventually let it go. Uh, if the political debate and you're on the right and they're on the left, or you're on the left and they're on the right, you're probably wasting your time because you're, you're, people are as married to those beliefs as they are to their religions. And the, you know the ultimate frustration is the libertarian try to talk to either side, because they're so convinced that anything that looks like the other side must be wrong that they won't listen to reason. So I wouldn't write her off as a lost cause, but I quit pushing. You've planted a seed. Let her go learn for herself. It's. It, it, I think that the problems in our society today 
are out in the mainstream. They're actually not hidden by the mainstream anymore, but they're in side notes in pieces, parts everywhere. You have to assemble them together. So when you expose somebody to the concept, eventually it's going to start popping up everywhere for them. Until they're exposed to the concept, they read right over it. It's like the little caption under the picture. You don't really pay attention to it. You look at the picture. Uh, so I, I think you've done enough. Let it go. And... I don't know why people get frustrated with people like this. Uh, usually it's people you care about, but generally speaking, it's just somebody that's offered you opposition, and you get really, really frustrated. There's a little cartoon. I don't know who wrote it or whatever, but there's a thing where, like, and it's been posted on the forum a couple of times, and the lady's, like, leaving, and the guy's typing on his computer, and she says, honey, let's go. And he goes, uh, he, he goes I, I need another minute. I have to finish here. Somebody on the Internet is wrong. You know, and I think that's how we, we take these things sometimes. We really don't need to be doing that. Um, on, a, on a happy note with agriculture, a lot of agriculture in today's show, um, somebody sent me an email. Here it is from Adam, and it says, um, here's a site that is donating seeds to families so they can feed themselves. Uh, so far, they've provided 65,000 families with seeds, and it's on CNN. I'm going to go ahead and play that for you. And uh, there's also a, their personal website, and I'll include both the uh, link to the video and the personal website of these people in today's show notes. But let's give this a listen. Uh, this is what these folks are doing. I love the United States. I think it's a wonderful place to live. It's scary to me that with so much land, with so much abundance, that people are hungry. In 2008, my husband lost his job. It was a very, very difficult time, and the first thing we did was plant a garden. If you grow your own food, you never have to worry about how you're going to feed your family. We thought if we can help others garden, then we can help them pull themselves up out of poverty. I'm Holly Hirschberg, and we fight hunger in the United States by giving away seeds and teaching people to grow their own food. Four, five. We pack enough seeds to grow food for a family of four. We want to help people provide for themselves. This is an eggplant, and I've already harvested from it. My garden is in front of my apartment. I can grow tomatoes, bell pepper, and just flower pots. If it wasn't for my garden, then I wouldn't be able to afford fresh produce at all. Here we have a tomatillo plant. These were all from seeds from the dinner garden. We have provided over 65,000 seed packs to individuals and families all over the country. We also have provided seeds for over 180 community gardens. So who wants to grow vegetables? We see a lot of families whose children only eat when they get a free meal at school. When they're at home, we really want them to have the best nutrition possible. And certainly, you can't do better than garden veggies. I'm not a master gardener. I wouldn't even say I'm a good gardener. I am an enthusiastic gardener. The seeds do all the work. We provide the seeds. We help you grow them. You eat the food. Goodbye, hunger. Okay, like I said, um, it's just a awesome movement that these people are, are involved with and their main website is located uh, at dinnergarden.org and I went by their site and I'm really impressed with not only their interview but what they're doing and how much they've already done. Uh, they do have a way you can donate money. I threw them 20 bucks today. You might want to consider giving them a donation as well. I'm not saying you, you should. I'm not saying you know you're wrong if you don't. I'm just saying that it's very rare that I actually see an organization and immediately think they're worth supporting and throw some money at them. And 20 bucks is not going to you know change my life one way or another, but it might help another family uh, plant another garden, and that's something I'm very big on. So uh, I did contribute to them, and I wanted to throw that out there. I also contacted them, let them know I contributed, let them know they're going to be on today's show. 
And I've asked them to uh, to possibly come on the show as a guest and gave them a link to the guest survey. If you happen to contact these people at all, let them know you heard about them on the show would help maybe get them on the air. So I think that would be great as well. What I really love the lady said, though, is I'm not a master gardener. I'm not even a good gardener. I'm just an enthusiastic gardener. The seeds do the work. She's probably underselling herself a little bit there, but I think it's great. Because if you give plants what they need, and they need good soil... They need a source of moisture, and they need a little bit of care. They will grow, and they will do most of the work for you. I think that one of the things we really need to understand, to understand the brilliance of gardening and how energy uh, advantageous it really is, is every time you look at a leaf, do you know what you're really looking at? You're looking at a solar panel. That's what a leaf is. A leaf takes solar energy and converts it to another type of energy, food for the plant and food for you. That's what a leaf is. So when you're eating food, Grown in a garden, you're eating solar energy. And when you're eating uh, meat, you're doing the same thing because all meat either eats other meat or other vegetables, and eventually the root goes back to the solar cycle. So that's how awesome gardening really is. And I love what they're doing. I love the way they're spreading the word. And I, I like this story because it's in direct contrast to the ass clowns up in Oak Park, Michigan that were trying to put a lady in jail for a vegetable garden. By the way, we called off the phone smackdown because they dropped the charges for now. I am keeping an eye on it. It's not going under the radar with me at all. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep an eye on that particular thing. Unfortunately, I do now have to take kind of a turn toward the negative. I got an email here from Rob in Michigan, and it just says, Jack's Social Security article, and I pull it up, and it's on Yahoo Finance. Here's what it says. Coming soon, smaller raises for seniors? With a question mark by Kathy Hill. Um, by, provided by Smart Money. Lawmakers are considering changes on how Social Security is adjusted for inflation. When inflation rises, retirees, Social Security checks keep pace with small increases, but if some lawmakers get their way, those raises may be a whole lot smaller in the future. As part of the current deficit reduction talks, White House officials and congressional leaders on both sides of the aisle are advocating changes to the way inflation is calculated. A little-notice proposal advocates measuring inflation with, ch with the chained consumer price index, a metric that would likely make inflation look slower than the current measurement does. That would result in smaller Social Security increases for seniors, experts say. Now, you can read the rest of the article if you want to. Here's what I want to point out. This isn't the first time we've done this. We, you know, we came up with the uh, consumer, consumer price index in, in the first place when we got rid of core inflation. All this is, this is, you know, they're going to take, seniors can't afford this, and on and on and on, we're going to hear it. Here's the reality. The freaking Social Security system is freaking bankrupt. We can't afford it anymore. It has to go away at some point. And that means we have to eventually wean people off the system. The only way we can do that is to take the people that are already there and continue to give them what they need to get by, or as much as we can give them to get by with, until they die. All right. If we put somebody into that system, we now owe it to them as a society to cover them for the rest of their lives. Because we said we would. People that are not in the system yet, that are getting up there in years, that are getting closer to it, they need some additional safeguards beyond what somebody my age gets. And if you're 25, you don't get any. You're going to pay and you get none. All right? Because by the time you're 65, or it'll be like 78 or 90 or something by the time you're old enough, because they're going to keep raising the upper limit on it until it goes away, it ain't going to be there. So if you're 25 right now and you're counting on Social Security, stop. Take care of yourself, because there's going to be nobody to take care of you by the time you're, by the time you're 65 or 73 or whatever. It's not going to happen. So forget it. Just forget Social Security if you're below 30 right now. If you're below 40, you probably need to forget it. And that's what has to happen. And this kind of crap is nothing but scaring old people to voting a certain way. 
That's what articles like this are. And you, But what about the old people, Jack? They're only going to get a 1% raise. They're lucky to get anything. I'm not saying that it's right that they're lucky to get it. I'm saying they're, they're lucky to... The country's $14 trillion in debt. $14 trillion in debt. You want to hear the nonsense of this? The real nonsense of this? How stupid this thing is? How big a cut this really is? They're going to make it sound big, but then I want you to do the math. Listen to this, and I know it's going to sound big if you don't think in the in the total numbers, but listen to this. Of course, lower benefits are part of the point. Using a slower rising index is being billed by many, including Barack Obama's Fiscal Responsibility Commission. How do you like that? The president, who in three years spent more money than any other president ever in the history of the world, all right? The guy that's responsible for like 32% of the nation's debt. You understand that? Barack Obama's administration has spent 32% of the nation's total debt. Bush was president for eight years. His spending accounts are like 22% of the nation's debt, 22 or 24. Barack Obama's over 30% with less than three years. Right? So he's got a fiscal responsibility commission. Just, ugh. And the Bipartisan Policy Center is a way to generate much-needed savings to help deal with the country's mounting debt crisis. In fact, the savings could amount to an estimated $112 billion over 10 years, according to the Congressional Budget Office. This is a start in helping us fix Social Security, David John, a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation, says. Okay, listen to this. Listen to this and wrap your freaking brain around a couple numbers here. One, we spend, on average, in the United States... 3.7 to 3.5 to 3.7 trillion dollars a year. That's what we're up to now. We take in about 2.6. So basically we're running trillion dollar annual deficits. That's not the debt. That's how much further we go in debt each year. A trillion dollars a year. A trillion dollars this year. A trillion dollars next year. A trillion dollars. A trillion. A trillion. A trillion is a thousand billion. A trillion is a thousand billion. You got that number wrapped into your head. They're going to cut the cost of Social Security with this little accounting rounding thing by 112 billion over 10 years. So what is that a year? That's about 11 billion a year when we're a trillion in a hole. And a trillion is a thousand billion. So what does it mean? It means nothing because the interest on the debt alone uh, next year will be like $418 billion. So the interest of the debt for one year is greater than the total cut of this over a decade. Let me put it to you another way that it will really make sense. This is going to cut $112 billion over 10 years for the Fiscal Responsibility Commission from Obama, the ass clown. Really, really, that's great. Uh, what is the whole... And Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. How much are we in the hole on those three programs alone between now and 2050? Does anybody know? Should I play Jeopardy music for you? Do, 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 do. Should I tell you? $55 trillion. $55 trillion hole in this one segment, and they're going to cut $112 billion over 10 years. Now, all this is going to do is make old lady Hubbard buy the generic beans instead of the uh, the name brand beans. Uh, that's all this is going to do. It's not going to have any effect. They don't even, you know what, we do need to fix Social Security. But taking anything from these folks for this is pointless. This is pointless. We could We could save more money in jet fuel than this is going to save us. This is about $10 billion a year. $10 billion on a $3.7 trillion deficit. 
A three, just think about it. Take this point seven. That's real money, by the way. That's seven hundred billion dollars. Just take it down to three. That's three thousand billion, and we're gonna cut ten at the expense of these older people. Here's the bigger story, though, that nobody's talking about. Do you know what this is really about? This is about convincing you and me that inflation ain't that bad. Like I've said this before. You talk to a single mom, she'll tell you how bad inflation is. Uh, this is just another example of government playing games with the money. Now, I've had a lot of questions lately. I want to talk about it real quick here before I kind of take on the last uh, email of the day. But um, I've had a lot of questions about this pending budget crisis. They're not going to raise the debt ceiling, Jack. The country's going to default on August 2nd. You know what? August 2nd is my birthday. Bring it, baby. Because first of all, we're not going to default. All right? That's nonsense and it's crap. And when Barack Obama gets up and goes, I can't guarantee seniors will get your Social Security checks. Bullshit. The budget of the country is $3.7 trillion. All right? We have lots of money. We take in $2.6 trillion. We could cut a trillion dollars in spending and never raise the ceiling for the budget cycle. Not for the monetary system it's going to be raised, folks. I'll get to that in a second. But just for the current year, to get throughout the rest of the year through December, we could pay every senior their Social Security check. We could pay every soldier his, his, uh, his uh, salary. And those are the two that they'll talk about cutting first to make everybody freak out. And we could take care of everybody that's on any kind of disability and all that other crap put together. And we could pay the interest on the debt and not borrow any more. And we could easily get right through the end of the year. Now, some government employees might get laid off. Wham! They might have to take some departments that work five days a week and work four and cut their salaries by 20%. Wham! Until you fix it, that's what you do. See, when you're sent to Washington with the, with the message, cut spending, that doesn't mean dick around with future spending. That means cut the spending today, right now. None of you guys seem to have that message up there in Washington. So that's what the people are telling you. I am actually shocked, though, the Republicans are holding the line the way they are. Because I think they're all a bunch of freaking sellouts. I don't know if there's enough new blood in there or if they just know it's political suicide to capitulate. But I'm going to tell you what's going to happen here. On August 2nd or after August 2nd, there'll be an agreement reached and there'll be big fanfare and both sides will claim victory. And Obama's probably going to come out looking better than anybody else. I am not happy about that. I'm not saying it's right. I'm telling you that's what's going to happen. He's going to look good in the end of this thing for most people because most people are stupid. If we get to the 2nd of August and we haven't reached a decision, they'll do a government shutdown and they, they probably won't send out Social Security checks. They probably won't send out welfare checks. They'll probably, so that one side can blame the other and say it's their fault. They don't have to do that. That's what they'll probably do. The, the stock market will probably dive a thousand points the day it happens. I can't guarantee that, so don't go short nothing on my word there. And we don't know that it's going to happen exactly this way. But it'll probably take a big, big catastrophe on Wall Street. The whole world's in upheaval. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. We're, they're going to hit this, you know, the, the false deadline of the 22nd. And say, so if we don't have an agreement by the 22nd, we'll never get in place by the 2nd. It, it, that'll probably cause some uncertainty on, on, on Wall Street. So look for that. Uh, what, four days from now? So Thursday, when there's no agreement, tentative agreement yet, look for, look for a miserable market on Friday. But when they come out with this great agreement, the band will play and the market will go way back up and everybody will be woohoo! And they'll say, Barack Obama stood his ground and got the best deal he could for the country. That's what's going to happen. Because the reality is this. The debt ceiling is going to be raised because we have an economy that requires more money every year 
That's where the inflation comes from in the first place. That is how the system works. To think that we will not raise the debt ceiling is ridiculous. Not because of some you know, emotional attachment that people have to like we're far enough in debt as it is. Because you're trying to say that if we add two to two, it won't be four. That's how the system freaking works. So it's going to be raised whether you or I like it or not. Now, ending on just one of the most obscene levels of ass clownery that I've ever seen in my life. And the term that springs to mind for this is a word that I think I created called douchebaggery, which is the actions that clearly indicate somebody being a douchebag. Um, this comes from Rick, and Rick's not the guy that's doing that. He's just reporting on it. It says, Hi, Jack. Apparently now the cops have nothing better to do than harass little children. Just another example of police having their priorities in the wrong place. Rick. Three girls busted for illegal lemonade stand. Three girls trying to raise money to go to a water park thought that a lemonade stand would do the trick. But then they met the long arm of the law, their local police chief. This is almost as bad, almost as bad as like throwing this lady in jail for 90 days for the garden. It's not because nobody went to jail, but it's just stupid. Listen to this. Three girls had started up their stand in Midway, Georgia, when police chief Kelly Morningstar, a deputy, drove by. Police chief Kelly Morningstar, you are a freaking moron, okay? You are a freaking moron. People should email you and tell you what a moron you are. Listen to this. They told us to shut it down. Ten-year-old Skylar Roberts was quoted as saying by the Coastal, Coastal Source News website, quote, it's kind of crazy that we couldn't sell lemonade, end quote, added 14-year-old Cassidy Dixon. Quote, it was fun, but we had to listen to the cops and shut it down. Doesn't it sound like the way a kid would say it, you know, common sense? Morningstar defended his actions and received the support of Midway's mayor, who should be voted out of office, folks in Midway. Get this ass clown out of office for supporting it. God almighty. Quote, we had told them, we understand that you guys are young, but still you're breaking the law and we can't let you do it anymore, end quote, Morningstar said. Quote, the law is the law and we have to be consistent with how we enforce the laws, end quote. The city requires a business and food permit, which costs $50 a day, even if the stand was in the home of one of the girls. Health officials, listen to this, this is, okay, think about the crap in your supermarket that you eat every day and then listen to this. Health officials were also a concern. Health issues were also a concern, Morningstar said. We are not aware of how the lemonade was made, who made the lemonade, or what the lemonade was made with, so we acted accordingly by city ordinances, he says. News of the bus caused an outpouring of local support for the trio. The coastal source says it had given the girls tickets to the water park. That's nice that they gave the girls tickets to the water park, but it doesn't really address the problem, does it? Government run amok yet again. Apparently now, it's not okay for little children to have a freaking lemonade stand. How many great entrepreneurs in America, how many of them say, you know, when I was growing up, I had a lemonade stand. I sold baseball cards or something like this. How many of the captains of industry today, people that did it without a degree, without help, without like a, a, an influential family, they just grabbed themselves by the bootstraps, pulled themselves up, and made something and built businesses, businesses that employed people, businesses that inspired people, start out their story with, when I was a kid, I went to the garden and picked the produce and sold it to the neighbors, picked the flowers in the meadow and sold it to the neighbors, made lemonade and sold it to the neighbors. Hundreds if not thousands, including yours truly. I've always been an entrepreneur. Apparently some of the things I did when I was a kid are no longer acceptable because they're dangerous. Well, let me tell you, 
There's been a hell of a lot more cancer caused by American corporations than little children. There's been a hell of a lot more food poisoning caused by American corporations than little children. There's been a hell of a lot more cases of salmonella in the food from large corporations and farms following government regulations than little kids making freaking lemonade. Let me answer some questions for you there, Mr. Morningstar. I will tell you this. I'll tell you how the lemonade was made. The little kids took lemons and sugar and put it in water and stirred it up or took some of that commercial country time crap and put it in water and stirred it up. That's how it was made, the end. We don't know who made the lemonade. The little girls made the lemonade, you jackass. That's who made the lemonade. Or what the lemonade was made with. Lemons and sugar, Mr. Jackass. That's what the lemonade was made of. You didn't need to do this. This is bullshit, and it's yet another example of government run amok. Sometimes I'm asked, and I want to conclude with this thought for you today, why I even bother with stuff like this? Why I even bother with politics, economics, and things like this? Why don't I just stick to preparing an individual liberty? Because I'm such a big advocate of that, and I often say that you have to focus on your individual liberty over what the government is doing because there's certain things there we can't do anything about, but we control our own lives. But this is why. Because if we let them keep doing shit like this, folks, we're not going to even have the option of doing it for ourselves anymore. Do you know that they're trying to outlaw the freaking Muscovy duck? The Muscovy duck that's been in city parks and in, in apartment complexes and everywhere there's a little pond for, for, for decades. I remember when I was a little kid. A little kid. I'm talking like seven years old. We moved to this apartment complex across from Jacksonville University in Jacksonville, Florida. It's still there. It's called Fountain Lakes. And there's this great big lake. And I was in heaven because I could fish for bluegills and bullheads every day. And on that little pond, there were hundreds and hundreds of Muscovy ducks. And the kids get down and fed them. And now apparently they're an environmental concern because they're competing with our native ducks. Do you know what? When I was a kid and those ducks were on that pond, that was like the only ducks you saw. The duck population in America was in really, really bad shape. But hunters went out and put up wood duck boxes and improved habitat. And now, everywhere you go, there's mallards, there's wood ducks, there's teal, the geese. So everything's better than it was back then. But now, all of a sudden, the Muscovy ducks are a problem. And how is this being done? The Muscovy ducks, naturally, the wild ducks, have naturally migrated into a very small piece of South Texas. So now they become a federal migratory game bird, and the federal government now can regulate them and says they can't be kept unless you have a permit to keep a freaking Muscovy duck. And they can only be kept if they're being farmed for food, to be sold as food, not even for your own production. Now that final ruling hasn't gone into place yet, and they say all the Muscovy ducks out there will be grandfathered in, but this is the kind of crap we're dealing with. That's just another example. Little girls can't sell lemonade, can't have a freaking Muscovy duck. One of the greatest sources of meat eggs, and insect control you could have on a farm. Can't have them anymore. Why? Why? Hundreds and hundreds of years of history of these these birds being domesticated. Well, they go out and compete with, so so fine. Let people shoot them in the wild. Let them be shot on sight. Let them be treated like any other uh, game animal that doesn't belong here. We can't do that because now they're protected because they naturally exist in this one. So in one county, protect them under that law. And everywhere else, say, you know what? You, and you know what? Right now you can. Well, actually, you could until they decided to protect them. You understand that? That's, that's how stupid this is. And it just keeps going and going and going. And this is why we have to stand. This is why at times we have to pull ourselves up and, and, and take ourselves out of that individual liberty thing and say on some levels we do have to fight. We have to draw a line in the sand and we have to say this is, this is too much. And how could something as simple as a lemonade stand set me off? It's, the first, it's not the first time a lemonade stand's been shut down. It's not the first time I've heard of one being shut down. But how many are we going to allow to be shut down? And here's what I want to know. What are you people 
in Georgia, specifically, what are you people in Midway, Georgia, going to do about this? I can't fix your problems for you. This is a Midway, Georgia problem. This is not even like the lady. Here's why I don't think this is like the lady with the front yard garden. The lady with the front yard garden, as far as I'm concerned, didn't violate any law in her own community. There was no law against gardens in the front yard. It was a debate over with the meaning of the word suitable, and the code official was wrong and threatened jail, even though he interpreted his own code wrong. There's no law to fight there. There was no reason for that to occur other than he had a stick up his ass. In this instance, this actually does violate a local law without any exception being made. So citizens of Midway, is this okay with you? Do you think this is acceptable? Because I'm going to give you a little bit of a clue here, citizens of Midway. You can fix this next election. You can throw that mayor out on his ass. You can get the, the police chief fired. You can replace your city council. You can replace your school board. Let me tell you how easy it would be like that. Changing who sits for you in Washington as a senator or a rep is very, very difficult. There's a lot of money involved. There's a lot of big-time influence. And it's very hard to steer that vote sufficiently. You are a city, a small city. All you have to do is decide you want it done, talk to your neighbors, and these clowns are out. And you can change this shit. And this is what we have to do everywhere. And this is not just about Midway. I guarantee you, folks, in your own backyard, crap like this is going on. Maybe not exactly like this, but something's going on that shouldn't. When it does, you have to speak up at the local level. There's an old saying, all politics is local. Free MSB to the first person that emails me and tells me who the first person that said all politics is local today. Put in, put that in the subject line, send it to me. The first person, the tenth person, and the one hundredth person to get that right. I'll get a free MSB today. But all politics is local. All politics is local. Because it all starts, and when they can get away with something in Midway, Georgia, then they can get it away in whatever county Midway is in. And when they can get away with it in the county, then they can get away with it in the state. It trickles up, not down. By the very structure of our government that I told you about earlier, the greatest power lies closest to the people. The least restricted government that exists in America today isn't even government. It's a private organization posing as government, the Homeowners Association, followed by the city, the county, then the state, and then the federal government. As you get closer to the people, the government has less restrictions. You know why? Because you're the restriction. It's up to you to do something about it. So what are you going to do? Because we can write a letter campaign to the people in Midway, Georgia. They're not going to give a shit. We don't vote there. What are you going to do in your own backyard? That's what I want to know today. I want to hear from you in the comment section of today's show. One action you're going to take this week to improve liberty in your own backyard. Whether it's for your personal action or something that's more activist like fighting something like this. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Revolution is you.